0: If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Exodus chapter 3. Fast, fast, fast. One more. (laughs) Uh, All right, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read the first 15 verses. This is what it says. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, He looked, and behold, the bush was not burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, "'I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned.' When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, "'Moses, Moses!' And he said, "'Here I am.' And he said, "'Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground.' And he said, "'I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob.'" And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the, Lord, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, uh, up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Father, I pray that that today that we would understand that you are the great I am. And as you so very uh, clearly communicate in your word, your name has been the same throughout all generations. It has not changed. You are the same God who has revealed uh, himself to Moses and you have revealed yourself to us. And so help us to understand that. Uh, Father, help us to see that you are a God who is above us, but you are also a God who is near us. I pray today that if anyone doesn't know you, that today that, that they would see Jesus, they would see what Jesus has done to save us and to reconcile us with you. And above all, I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room, that we would remember to anchor identity in what Jesus says we are and who we are, not in the other things that we try to identify ourselves with, but with Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we have, um, we've seen through, through the first two chapters of Exodus so far that God is at work, okay? He's been working in the midst of the hurt and the pain of his people. Now, it hasn't been up front so far. Alright, most of God's working has been in the background, which is oftentimes how God works. A lot of times we don't see Him working up front, it's often in the background of our lives, it's often when we look back sometimes maybe weeks, months, years later that we see where God was working and moving and putting all the pieces in place for our good and His glory. And God, through these first two chapters, has been doing all that. He's been putting pieces into place to save and to redeem his people. And at the end of chapter 2, it says that God remembered his covenant. And remember in the scriptures, anytime you see that God remembered, it's not like he forgot to set a reminder on his phone or, or tie a piece of string around his finger. That's not what it means at all. When you see, it says that God remembered, it means that God is bringing something to mind as a prelude to action. It means that God is fixing to flex, that God is fixing to work in the lives of his people. And so verse 25 of chapter 2 said that God saw the people and God knew And what we said is that our God is a God who sees and knows us, that he's not a God who leaves us in our hurt and in our pain, but instead he sends a savior for us, that God prepared Moses for Israel and he's prepared Jesus for you and for me. And with a glance at the cross and the empty tomb, we can strengthen our faith and we can know that our God is for us and he is not against us. Now, at the start of chapter 3, we see God beginning to work, and what we're going to see is God is going to speak for the first time in the Exodus story. In his 1973 book, Knowing God, J.R. Packer, in the foreword to the book, says this. He says, Ignorance of God, ignorance of His ways and the practice of communion with Him lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. The modern way with God is to set Him at a distance if not to deny him altogether. And the irony is, is that modern Christians preoccupied with maintaining religious practices in an irreligious world, have themselves allowed God to become remote. Okay, that's 1973. Not a lot's changed. And so let me just explain to you what he means, right? When he says that we've become a people who want religious practices, what he means is this. We want cool programs, right? We want you to program the heck out of your church. We want to have stuff every night of the week. We want stuff for the kids and the preteens and the students. We want stuff for the babies. We want stuff for the boomers. We want stuff for the millennials. We want stuff all over the place. We want programs. We want a great children's ministry. We want a youth pastor to teach our kids about Jesus so we don't have to. Amen? Right? We want all these things. But above all, what Packer's saying is we want practical teaching topics. So, so don't give me theology. Don't, don't give me a lot of Bible, okay? That's, that We don't want that, right? Just give me a little bit here and there. And what we want is we want it watered down and we want it god right? And, and that is a lot of churches. And what Tim Chester says is this, is that nothing is less practical than God-like Christianity. Nothing is less practical than that. But because we are a people who want God-like Christianity, and because we're a people who don't read our Bibles, a recent study by LifeWay said that 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church, right, that's you, read their Bible every day, 32%, that's it. And so because we want God-like teaching, because we don't read our Bible, what's happened is we've begun to find God ourselves. How many times have you heard somebody say something like this? Well, I think God is like. What about the great American Harry Winning Machine, Ricky Bobby, right? You remember Ricky Bobby? And that great scene? One of my favorites, right? You know, and he's talking about how Jesus in his golden fleece little diaper, right? And, 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 and his wife's like, hey, he, he's not a baby anymore. He goes, if I want to picture Jesus as a baby, I can picture him as a baby, right? And then Cal says, you know, he likes to picture Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt, Right? It says he's formal, but he's here to party too. Right? One of my favorite lines. And that, that that scene is hilarious, but I watch it and I cringe because I know a lot of people that way. Right? People say, Well, I think God is like. And when you say, I think God is like, what you're saying is, I don't want anyone to tell me what to think about God. I'll decide for myself what God is like, and I'll imagine him in whatever way I choose to imagine him. And brothers and sisters, you're not immune from doing that in the church. When people preach or when I preach on some aspect of God's character, you will hear people say, well, I don't like the sound of that. God's not like that. I don't think God's like that at all. Right? It might be his judgment. God doesn't judge, really? Come on. It might be his sovereignty. It might be his sexual standards. Whatever it is, we make a God that suits our needs a God in our own Image. And Tim Chester says, when we do this, we detach ourselves from reality. He then gives a very helpful illustration. He says, You might as well say, I like to think of elephants as two legged animals. Doesn't really matter what you want to think about elephants, it's irrelevant. It won't change the fact that elephants have four legs. See, God's not a concept that we get to shape as we choose. God is self-defining. God determines and announces who he will be and what he will be like, not your imagination. And in Exodus chapter 3, we see exactly who our God is. Look with me, if you will, in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. All right. So we know it's been 40 years. Moses has been keeping his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. The ESV says that he's on the west side of the desert, but if you've got an old King James, I like what it says. It says that he was on the back side of the desert. Moses was in the middle of nowhere, right? He was in Spearman, keeping sheep. He's been there for 40 years. And here's the thing being raised as an Egyptian, this had to have been humiliating for Moses. In the book of Genesis, chapter 46, verse 34, Joseph said, For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so he's had 40 years to realize that he's just an abomination to the people that raised him. He's out in the middle of nowhere, he's attending the flocks, and all of a sudden he sees a bush that's on fire. Right? It's it's burning, but then it's not consumed by the flames. Which he had to have been thinking, man, I have been with the sheep way too long if this is what I'm seeing. Like something's wrong. And then we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames. Now I'm not gonna go into that very much, but anytime you read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's what theologians call a theophany. So it is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus speaking to him out of the bush. And so Moses says, hey, I've got to go check this thing out. And so he turns aside to look at it. And now what I want you to see is this. This is not a chance encounter with God. So Moses didn't just happen to be at the right place at the right time. God's providence has led Moses to the backside of the desert, to the middle of nowhere, Now, we've got this thing that we say all the time in Christianity where we like to say, well, God will meet you right where you're at, right? God's a gentleman, right? He'll he'll meet you halfway. And I understand what people are saying when they say that, but that's not what the Bible teaches at all, okay? God didn't meet Moses where he was. God didn't meet Moses halfway. God brought Moses to the place where God was. God was the one orchestrating this whole thing. It's the same with your salvation, The moment that you trusted in Jesus, it's not that he met you halfway, it's that he brought you to that place. And this is exactly what we see happening right here. And in verse four, look what happens. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So we call this the burning bush, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, we all talked about the burning bush. It's a cute little story. We love to talk about it. But the thing is, is it's a burning bush, but it's not really burning. And that's why Moses is drawn to it. And if you think about it, there's something about fire that draws you and I in, right? It was very cold this week. Some of you probably had a fire going in your house, and you sat around that fire because it was warm and it drawled you in. All right? I'm ashamed to admit this, but we're cat people now. Thank you, Ellie. Okay? And that cat loves the fire, right? That cat will lay down in front of that thing, and he will not move for hours. He just lays there and gets in everybody's way. He loves the fire. It draws you in. But see, the other thing about fire is, is that we know to keep our distance from fire, don't we? That stupid cat had to learn that a few times. First time I ever did a fire, he thought he was going to jump in there with the thing, popped him, got him pretty good a few times. And see, the biggest surprise about this is that God called to Moses from the bush, and he tells Moses, Don't come any closer, Moses. That's far enough, cowboy, all right? Take your shoes off because you are on holy ground. The word holy means different or distinctive. So hear me. God is not like us. God is set apart. God is other. The scriptures tell us repeatedly that he is holy, in fact, they would even say, as Jay read this morning, that he is holy, holy, holy. Anytime the Bible emphasizes something three times, that's a big deal, letting you know that God is nothing like you. And up to this point, God's been working in the background. We haven't heard from him at all until now. And what he tells Moses is this, is he says, hey, Moses, I'm the God of your father, And then he goes further back, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. And look, what does Moses do as soon as he says that? And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now very quickly, look at me. This side of the cross, we have experienced the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. But listen to me, that does not diminish or take away from God's holiness and God's glory. Okay? You understand that? It doesn't take away from that. God evokes awe and terror. You do not treat God lightly. God is not your buddy. He's not your friend. He's not the big guy in the sky. He's not the ranch foreman in the sky, as I've heard some people say. If you were to meet God, your instinct would be the exact same as Moses. You would hide your face. The term for this, the theological term is called transcendence. So when God tells Moses to keep his distance, he's telling Moses, mind the gap, boy. If Moses had taken so much as one step closer in God's direction, his life would have been in danger just like my cat, if he'd have jumped in that fireplace, which I wouldn't have been a bad thing. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, Ellie. I'm kidding, right? His life would have been in danger. So the first thing that we see about who God is is that he is holy, that he is transcendent, and listen, you do not trifle with him. But then the second thing we see is look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So God then says to Moses, I've seen their afflictions of the afflictions of my people. I've heard their cries. I know their sufferings. So hear me on this. God is concerned with the sufferings of his people, right? We've already talked about this. He's a God who hears and sees and knows. But also remember that he's transcendent, that he's holy, that he's above us, but he is also among us. So, So Tim Chester puts it this way, and again, he helped me tremendously on this passage. I pretty much ripped him off, all right? He's a great guy, right? He says we only appreciate his amongness if we are first awed by his aboveness. So each and every one of us have to start with his aboveness. We have to understand that he's holy, that he is distinct, that he is different, that he is not like us, that you and I as sinful creatures cannot approach him. And when we understand his aboveness, that makes his nearness all the more amazing that God would care about sinful people like us, right? That's exactly what he's saying. So he's present even though we don't sense his presence. And so if you were honest this morning, we could all say that there have been times in our life, or maybe you're in one right now, where you feel forgotten by God, or you feel as if God feels far away. And so you cry out, or again, you're currently crying out as the Israelites did, and you probably feel how they felt, that God doesn't hear or is uninterested. But again, God repeats in his word that he has seen, that he has heard, and that he knows the difficulties of his people But more than that, look, he's done something else. Look what he says in verse 8. He's not just seen and heard and knows. Look what he says. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, I've come down. I don't just hear and see and know. I have come down. I am not absent from your story. So listen to me. We don't have a God who leans back away from us. We have a God who leans in. We have a God who pulls us up out of the mess that we've made. Psalm 40 is probably one of my favorite psalms. And what does the psalmist say in verses 1 through 2? That I waited patiently for the Lord. And what did he do? He inclined to me. He heard my cry and then he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet on a rock making my steps secure. The psalmist says God didn't lean back. He inclined and then he reaches in and he pulls us up out of the bog. So God tells Moses, listen, I have come down to deliver them and take them into a good and a broad land. The theological term for this is imminence. God is transcendent. He's above us, he's holy, he's different, he's not like us, but God is also imminent. He is near to his people. And the mistake a lot of people make is they want to lean too far in one direction or the other. So many people are just deists, right? They believe in God, but he doesn't affect their lives. He's just transcendent, he's above us. And if that's all he is, then that God doesn't see, hear, or care, right? And there's a lot of people that way. He just started the clock and then he just let this thing go. That we believe he's there, but he's not, in our, he's not uh, in our lives in any way. But then there's people that they lean too far the other way on this imminence thing. And so they believe that God is with them all the time, that he's imminent, that he's in everything, right? You see it in movies all the time. Avatar, the Lion King, right? He's in the trees, he's in the ground, he's everywhere. But if he's just imminent, then he's not holy or above us. Then he's just your buddy and your friend, and you can do whatever you want because he's just your amigo. But the God that's revealed himself to Moses is both above us and he's among us. And in verse 10, he says, all right, Moses, let's go. I'm above you, but I'm also among you, so let's go, boy. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Now, how many times do you and I see a problem and wish we could hear God say, hey, I've seen, I've heard, and I know? All the time, right? We, 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 we wish we could hear that from God. But the reason we don't hear it is because we don't hear God say the next part. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a problem. Guess what? Yeah, I'm sending you. <laughs> I'm sending you. See, a lot of times God intends for us to be the solution to the problem. And so a lot of times we'll say, hey, man, I've got all these friends that really don't know Jesus. God, I really wish you'd do something about it. And God's going, uh-huh, yeah, me too. You're around them every day. Why don't you open your mouth and tell them about Jesus? Boy, my kids, man, I just, I really wish they were getting more spiritual nourishment, you know, at church. Man, I really wish there was something I could do. And God's like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I gave you to them as parents. That's your primary responsibility. Teach them about me. Tell them about Jesus. See, Moses wasn't ready to hear that. Moses was just like, what? (laughs) Me? you want me to go? And that's what he says next. He's like, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Right? He feels inadequate and and he he should. He killed an Egyptian, right? And so he's a fugitive. But then remember, he also tried to lead the Hebrews and that didn't go well at all either because they were having none of it. And so Moses is like, who am I? And see what's going on here is that there's this question of identity in Moses' life. Who am I? And it's the same question that every one of us in this room ask ourselves today. So many people want to know who they are, and so many of us are finding identities in everything but God. So, so let me just give you a couple of identities, okay? And I'm, I'm going to be very grateful to a guy named Matt Chandler for, for helping me kind of flesh this out. I'll just, give you, I'll just give you two, two identities I think that we deal with and we see right here in our own town. The first one is this, I'm in control identity. I got this thing. I got all under control, right? I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I don't need help. Help, man, do you know who I am? I can handle this thing. But the thing is, we talked about it last week. You're not in control of anything. And the longer you live, the more you should understand that. Who's been watching the news on the coronavirus? You're not in control of that. There's nothing you can do, and that's why it bothers so many of us, because we're all control freaks going, ah, what if it gets over here? There's nothing we can do. It's beyond our control, but the funny thing is, the more that life teaches us we're not in control, the more we want to try and control it, right? And when your identity is in, I have all this together, I can control this, you have no choice but to be anxious or angry, Anxious because everything's out of your control, anxious because there's nothing you can do about it, worried about the next big thing because you just can't do anything about it, or angry at the world and at everything because you can't do anything about it. So we talked about it last week. We can't control everything, so either you're anxious or you're really really angry or you're really nervous about it. And the best thing for us to do is to realize that we're not in control of anything, that you're not God. So you can take that pressure off yourself and trust the one who's got everything in control. So so that's the first false identity I think we see. But here's the other one. It's kind of got two parts. The second one is this, is that I am what I do or I am what I own. So if your self-worth and your value in this life are built on what you do or what you own, hear me you will always be depressed or in debt. It's your only two options. So if your identity is in what you do, then what happens when you don't do that thing anymore? I mean, listen. I love you. I'm going to be honest with you. When you hang it up, nobody's building a monument to you. Right? I mean, it's not like they're going to put a statue outside your farm when you die. Your kids will probably just sell it to somebody else. Maybe. Maybe. they're not. They're not. Nobody's going to remember you in six months after you leave. That's reality. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It tells us over and over again that, right, we work, we live, we die, nobody remembers us. That's how it is. That's reality. So if your identity is in what you do, what happens when it's over? If your identity is in what you own, then listen, you're always going to be enslaved because you always have to have more. So you will give away your peace of mind to buy a house you can't afford, to drive a car you can't afford, to buy clothes you can't afford, all to impress people that you probably don't like anyways. And see, what happens is the pressure to achieve and sustain these identities becomes too much. And that's why we see rates of depression are higher than ever before. And that's why it's left so many of us questioning, you know, who am I? Who am I? And so Moses says, who am I? And look at what God's answer is in verse 12. I love God's answer. He said, but I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So who am I, God? And God says, ah, I'll be with you. (laughs) That's his response. If Moses was one of our kids and they were like, who am I, Daddy, right? What would we do? Well, you're a rock star, kid. You are awesome. You're amazing. Look at all that you have going for yourself. Just believe in yourself, slugger. You're great, okay? Our response would be to try to raise our kids' self-esteem. It would try to raise uh, our friends' self-esteem. And God does none of that. He doesn't try to raise his self-esteem. He just says, Moses, I'll be with you. That's all you need to know. God's the one who makes the difference. Moses doesn't need higher self-esteem. He needs a greater sense of God's presence. And God wants us to know that we can base our sense of self on our knowledge of him and who he is. We can find confidence and worth knowing that he's there for us, that he's here for us, and that our achievements and our failures will not affect our status as children of God. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Again, Tim Chester, helpful illustration, all right? Tim Chester is English, okay? And so he says, imagine that you show up at Buckingham Palace one day, right? I walk up to the gate, I go up to the guy with the funny hat, and uh, he looks at me, and he's like, hey, why are you here? I'm like, I'm here, here to check out the palace, man. Uh-huh, yeah. Who are you? I'm Byron Potter. Jeez, man. Don't you know me? I'm the pastor First Baptist Spearman, you know, way up there in the middle of nowhere, backside of the desert, you know, Panhandle, Texas. Um, like, everybody podcasts me. I'm a big deal on PTCI. Um, like, do you not know who I am? And that guard's gonna be like, no, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. You're not coming into the palace. But... Let's say that, that I see Kate Middleton, okay? Not Megan, all right? She ain't getting in there. But let's say I go, get, I go get Kate. And I show up with Kate and Kate Middleton, who is the Duchess of Cambridge now, because her identity now comes from her husband, the prince. If she rolls up to the gate and he's like, oh, hey, uh, Kate, yeah, I'll, I'll let you in, right? And Kate says, yeah, he's with me. See, my identity now is because of who Kate is. It's the same with you and I as believers, that we get our identity from Jesus, right? The book of Ephesians says that he is our husband, that we are the bride of Christ. And so if we're in Jesus, we're united to Christ, we're children of God the Father. And so our identity can be derived from the fact that God is with us because of what Jesus has done. And so Moses says, who am I? And God says, I'm with you. Here's proof, Moses. You're going to go get the Hebrews, you're going to bring them back, and you're going to worship right here on this very mountain. That's all the proof that you need is that I'm with you. And in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses got a few questions right? Okay, I, I, I get it. Okay, you're, you're, you're above me, you're near me, you're sending me. Okay, my identity comes from you going with me. But, but what if I go to these people and I say, hey, uh, the God of their father sent me to them, and they ask, well, why don't you tell us that God's name? What, what, what do I say? What do I say? And in verse 14, it says that God says to him, you just tell them that I am sent you. So when you and I introduce ourselves We usually say, hey, my name is Byron Potter, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church, or I'm Byron Potter, I'm a husband, or I'm a father, or I'm tall, right? Or I can grow an oppressive mustache, something like that, okay? Those are usually the things that we do. So we define ourselves by those things. But listen, God's not defined by anything outside of himself. So he says, you just tell him that I am who I am. Most scholars will tell you this. Really, the most accurate translation of that is, I be who I be. God says, you tell him I be who I be since you. That Hebrew verb, it indicates an action with no particular instance in view. So God's saying, I have always been who I've always been. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will act in a way that's consistent with my character and my track record that I am who I am, that God is self-defining rather than shaped by others or by his relationship with other people. I will be who I will be. God will determine the future. Or in other words, I will be all that matters in the future is the name of God. So the context is this, is that the God of the patriarchs of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob in the past is going to liberate his people in the present to give them the promised land in the future. The I am reveals his name. It's the Lord. And if you'll notice in your Bibles, it's capitalized. The Lord. It's the word Yahweh. What this means is that the divine name reveals God's transcendence, his aboveness, his holiness, but it also reveals his imminence, his nearness. This is who's pledged himself to Moses. Not some cosmic life coach full of pithy sayings and pep talks to encourage Moses and raise his self-esteem, but no power to do anything. This is the mighty sovereign Lord who's independent and holy upon whom Moses is utterly dependent. So check this out. God didn't need Moses to go to Egypt. But if Moses was going to go to Egypt, he needed God. It's the same with you and I. God doesn't need you to be his witnesses. But since he saved you and called you to be his witnesses, we badly need him. He's above us as our sovereign, transcendent Lord, but he's with us as our imminent Lord. If you notice in verses 14 and 15, when God reveals his name, he does it three times in those two verses. What I tell you earlier, when he really wants to emphasize something, he does it three times. This is who I am, Moses. He gives his name in verse 14. Then he says, because this is who I am, I'm going to send you. You can trust me. Then he says, even more than that, because of who I am, you can trust me to keep my covenant promises with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he's saying, the great I am has not forgotten his promise. He's letting Moses know that my good name is at stake in keeping my promise. So I am sending you back to do what I'm calling you to do. When our God makes a promise, he keeps it. He's faithful and he's true to do that. And see, what Moses didn't know, listen, is that many years later, God would come down again. When, when Moses, when God told Moses, I am and I will keep my promises, Moses could never have known just how far Yahweh was going to go to keep his promises. Flip over to the book of John, just real quickly, in the New Testament. John chapter chapter 8. When you get there, go down to verse 53. Jesus is having a little bit of a confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and there's some back and forth going on, and, and they even think that Jesus has a demon at this point. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These people are saying, hey, how do you know Abraham and Jesus uses the divine name of God he says because I am Do you want to know how Abraham saw my day and rejoiced? Because I am who I am. I be who I be. That's why. That's why they wanted to kill him, because Jesus is saying, I am God, that I have stepped down out of heaven, I have took on flesh, and I am going to bleed, and I am going to die to save my people, to bring them from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation to stand before the throne room of God, clean and pure and holy. I'm going to come and bring them from deeper slavery to sin to the glorious freedom of the children of God. So, folks, listen, here's what this means, okay? When you understand who God is, that He is transcendent, but He is also imminent, that He's above you, but that He's near, and that you do not have to be defined by anything other than the fact that the great I am says you're mine. That's what it means. We don't have to be defined by fake identities. We can be defined by the great I am who says, you're my children, now find rest in me. And so it means that no matter what we go through in this life, the great I am goes with us. It means that we can strive after holiness as the people of God, right? Which you should if you're a believer, you should strive for holiness. You should try every day. You should put sin to death. You should want to be more and more like Jesus. We strive for holiness. Now, check this out while resting in grace, knowing that no matter what happens, it cannot separate us from the love of our Father. That when we stumble and fall, we're just like little kids learning to walk, right? When your kids learn to walk, they take a step and they fall over, and not one of you goes, idiot! Instead, you rejoice that they took a step, and we can rest in that grace knowing that he loves us, knowing that because the great I am took our place and paid for our sins that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So hear me, every time you hear the name the Lord, or every time you hear the name the Lord Jesus, it's a reminder that God has committed himself to a relationship with you, and that will never change. you would pray with me father i thank you so much that you are a god who is holy and transcendent that you are above us that you are other and that you are different but you are also a god who is imminent and you are near which makes that imminence all the more amazing that a god like you would love people like us So, Father, I pray that today that we would find our identity in the great I Am who has kept His covenant with the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who called Moses on the mountain, the God who said, I've come down to see the afflictions of my people. The same God, through the person of Jesus Christ, stepped down out of heaven, took on flesh, lived a life we should have lived, died a death we deserved, took our place on a cross, and then rose again saying, I've come to do what I have promised to do, and that is save and liberate my people. And now that if you've trusted in me, you are children of God, and that our status and our identity is in that. It's not in all the things that we try to try to make ourselves, it's in what Jesus has said about us. And so I pray that as believers we could rest in that. I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you today, that they've heard the gospel of what Jesus has done to reconcile sinners so that we could be near our transcendent God. I pray today that you've changed lives and you've saved. Thank you for all you've given us. Be with us now as we stand and sing, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.